Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much, Connor. Appreciate that. Um, so as you may have guessed, we're in a series in 2 Timothy. And so this morning, I want to speak to anyone here that would want to be used by God. In fact, I believe that deep in every person's heart, there is a desire to be set apart uh, for God's use. And I would just say this, there's no thrill like the thrill of being used by God. There's nothing better than being an instrument in the hands of God Almighty to do his work. I mean, maybe to change the direction of someone's life, maybe to resolve an argument, maybe to respond to a challenge, maybe to heal a weakness, or maybe even to turn a nation. But make no mistake, friends, there is nothing more important in your life, nothing, than being used by God. Now, if the devil wants to attack a church, there are a couple of ways he can do it. And so far in 2 Timothy, we've talked about the first way. The first way is he'll attack a church from the outside, uh, you know, through things like persecution, which uh, Timothy and the church at Ephesus were having to endure. But then the other way that the enemy will attack a church is not just from the outside, but from the inside through things like division and disunity. And in fact, that's what Paul's going to talk about today. So let's look at verse 14. We'll just start to unpack this as we walk our way through. Remind them of these things. Now, what is these things? What are the things that Timothy is to remind them of? Well, first of all, they're told to remember or to rehearse Jesus. They are to draw from his power. They're to trust in his faithfulness. And he's saying, Timothy, you keep on reminding people of that. Keep on pointing people to Jesus. He is sufficient. And then he says, and charge them before God not to fight about words. Now notice first he says, charge them before God. He's saying, Timothy, this is super serious. You remind them, Timothy, that they belong to God. You remind them that they will answer to God for their behavior. And the behavior they were engaging in was they were arguing with one another. There were church squabbles, if you will, breaking out. And there were these dividing factions over what Paul called word battles, Word battles. And this probably represents different doctrinal viewpoints. Now, listen, of course, words matter. They do, they're important. And it's fine for brothers and sisters in Christ to challenge one another, it's fine to share different points of view. But what Paul is saying here is don't ever go to war with another brother or sister in Christ over words, over words. And the idea here is probably secondary doctrine that isn't vital. It's not the main thing. In other words, he's saying, don't argue about secondary issues. Don't put primary passions into secondary things. And I got to tell you, friends, during COVID, I saw this happen to the church in America, and it was heartbreaking for me. It was gut-wrenching. I mean, people were leaving churches over stupid things, over what I would call word battles, words like mask, words like vaccine, words like quarantine, 
Words that had absolutely nothing to do with the mission of this church. And words that our enemy used to bring great division and great disunity to the church of God. And so Timothy was to plead with them, earnestly reminding them that as brothers and sisters in the Lord, they are never to go to war over words. And I just think we as Christians need to remember that, that we're, we're not to be engaged in debates that get so heated that we forget what the Lord has called us to do. Listen, when brothers and sisters argue and debate, it clouds and it obstructs our witness to a watching world. This is why Paul goes on to say this. He says uh, that it leads to the ruin of those who listen. In fact, that word ruin is actually the word catastrophe. That's where we get that word from, the word catastrophe. He's saying, look, uh, it's, it literally leads to a series of catastrophic events in a church when God's people argue with one another, especially over secondary issues. Let me give you an example of this. So years ago, it's a true story. There was a church that got into a major quarrel over whether to have a Christmas tree in their church building. One faction contended that Christmas trees were of pagan origin, so to have one in the church was to yield to a pagan practice. The other group thought having one was a way of building a bridge to unchurched people and that it was harmless and there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. So the latter group decorated a tree, they set it up in the church basement. Well, when the other group arrived, they grabbed the tree, lights and all, dragged it out into the church parking lot. Well, then the other faction picked up the tree in the parking lot, took it back into church, and this interchange literally ended in a brawl in church. So the police were called, the police came, they locked the doors, sent everybody home. The next day, the whole story was front page news for the whole community to see. Friends, when stuff like that happens in a church, their witness to the community is just over. They're done. It's literally a catastrophe. When Christians engage in word battles. And so Timothy is warned by Paul to do three things in particular in a context of division and disunity within the church. So he's saying this, sure, Timothy, yeah, there's persecution from the outside. I get that. Timothy, there's division and disunity on the inside. I get that. So I want you to do three things. And the first thing is this, I want you to continue to faithfully teach the Bible. Point people over and over and over again to the sufficiency of God's word. Here's how he says it in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, I want to stop here and I want to notice something that we are sometimes tempted to skip, skip over. What he's really saying here is, Timothy, I want you to seek the approval of God, not of factions not of different groups of people. Don't take sides, Timothy. Just take God's side. Preach God's truth. So he's telling Timothy, look, don't only think about the approval of the people in your church. You are to seek God's approval first. And this applies to any of us in the room. So he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, as you're speaking, as you're leading, 
in a church that's just filled with problems, I want you to ask yourself the question, what does God think of the words that you are speaking, the stance that you are taking, the posture that you're delivering from? And then I want you to notice too, that as a teacher of God's word, Timothy is called a workman, a workman. Now, I want you to know, as a teacher, it is work to teach God's word. But he says, Timothy, you're a laborer. And I want you to be a laborer who does not want, who does not need to be ashamed because you've done your homework. You've studied, you've prayed, you're ready, you've stayed pure. I would say that in my experience, it takes at least a minimum of 15 hours a week to prepare a message. Now, I'm not saying that you'll enjoy that message. I'm just saying it'll be a message that's true to God and true to God's heart, right? Now, listen, I, I need to stop here, and I want to remind us all of something that's really important. Most of us are never going to stand up and teach God's word, but every one of us in this room, if we're followers of Jesus, you are a laborer. You are a workman. You are a servant of Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that. It may not be preaching and teaching, but you are a workman. You are a laborer. And you don't want to meet your Savior someday and extend your hand and meet the hand of his nail-scarred hand and be ashamed because you never got around to serving Christ. Now, um, with it being football season, I want to make this point this way. I wonder if I've ever told you the story of the epic football game between the large animals and the small animals. Have I ever told you that story? Yeah, the blank looks on your faces kind of give it away. So I'm going to. I mean, it was incredible. And just as you would expect, the large animals were just cleaning up the field, you know, with the small animals. I mean, it was just no contest. I mean, the small animals would kick off to the rhino right, who would receive the ball, just rumble down the field for a touchdown. I mean, squirrels are hanging onto his legs, birds are pecking his horn, you know, but it's just not working. It was miserable. I mean, at the end of the first half, it's like 48 to nothing, large animals are in the lead. And to make matters worse, the small animals lost the coin toss, so they had to kick off again. Well, the elephant receives the ball in the end zone. He gets out about five yards out of the end zone and bam, I mean, he's just dropped dead in his tracks at the five-yard line. So, I mean, it was incredible. The next play, they hand off to the rhino. And in the backfield, the rhino is hit just like he hit a brick wall. He gets no yardage at all. He's just stopped dead in his track. Can't even get out of the backfield. On third down, the gorilla takes the snap. He goes back to the end zone to throw. He gets hit. He, the ball comes loose. There's a mad scramble right in the end zone. I mean, there are animals all over the place. Big animals over here, small animals over here, animals on top of one another, right? And finally, they start pulling animals off this pile. They get to the ball and on top of the football is a centipede touchdown small animals incredible so they pick up the centipede and they go man was that you that hit the elephant on the kickoff and he goes yeah that's me they go man was that you that tackled the rhino in the in the backfield he goes yeah it's me they go well was it you that knocked the ball out of the gorilla's hands in the end zone he goes yeah it was me. 
they go, man, where were you in the first half? And he goes, well, I had to get my ankles taped. <laughs> now listen, here's why I tell you that story. Some of you have spent way too much time getting ready to serve God. Getting ready to get into the game. Getting ready to do something incredible for your Savior. And I just want to say this, if, that if you wait until you feel like you're ready to begin serving Christ, you never will. You never will. Listen, I've been leading here in this church for 28 years. And just this week, I woke up. There were a couple of mornings where I woke up, and you know what I said to God? God, I don't know how to lead. I don't know how to do this. You know, so my point is, like, you know, you're never going to feel ready. I don't feel ready to continue to lead this church, and I've been at it for 28 years. But nonetheless, this is the call of our God, you know, to, to be workmen who do not want to be ashamed. You are a workman. And you will one day be held accountable for how you live your life and the things that you invest in or the things that you don't invest in. And as a workman, Timothy is told to rightly handle the word of truth. But here's the good news for you and for me. Listen, right now, today, it's only half time, right? You're here. That means you got the rest of your life to live the second half, so will you get out of the stands and will you get on the field? Will you get in the game? You are a workman. You are a servant of Jesus Christ. So live like it. Act like it. Serve like it. Uh, now, and so again, as a workman, Timothy is told, okay, here's how you're to serve. You're to rightly handle the word of truth. Now, the word used here is a fascinating word. It's the only time it's used, actually, in the whole New Testament, and it literally means to cut a straight line. And what's so fascinating to me about this word is, if you'll remember, Paul was a tent maker, he made tents for a living. So if he didn't cut a straight line and then he started to put that tent together, it was going to sag over here. It's going to droop over here. Maybe there'll be a little hole over here. Cutting straight lines was everything in tent making. And here's what he's getting at. When someone stands up and teaches a passage, they have to teach that passage in light of what all the other passages in Scripture teach about that subject churches and teachers start to get into trouble when they pick a verse and try to build a theology around one verse without taking into account what all the other verses of scripture say and so that's what Paul's getting at he's saying look you got to make sure that you're studying not just the passage that you're teaching from but that you're studying the whole bible i remember the very first time i walked on the campus where i went to seminary what drew me to that seminary was i walked to the middle of campus there was a huge open bible and three words were inscribed on that statue it was this preach the word preach the word and i thought this is the place for me this is where I belong. This is where I need to be. I knew it the moment I saw that, you know. 
It's a funny thing. Uh, it's kind of like sewing as well, right? If you don't cut a straight line in sewing, I mean, you're just done, right? Funny story about my wife and sewing. So many of you may know that my wife, Jackie, was actually valedictorian of her high school. She made one B in high school. Do you want to know what the class was that she made the B in? Yeah, it was home economics, Home economics was the, was the one class she made a B in, and little did she know she would go on to devote two decades of her life to her children and to her home. I mean, it was beautiful, you know. Funny thing about my wife being valedictorian, one time we were telling some friends this, and they were, they were looking at her like incredulously, like, you were valedictorian of your class? She's like, yeah, I really was. They're like, you hide it really, really well. You know, she didn't really know how to respond to that in that moment, but you take it as you can, right? So at any rate, Paul says, look, if that isn't dealt with, oh, so, so let me tell you how seriously we are supposed to take this idea of false teaching. So years ago, when I first came to Shelbyville Community Church, at that time, we met in the Shelbyville Boys Club, and there was a guy, a man, who attended at that time, who, in my mind, had a very distracting and a toxic theology. And he and I talked, and he and I talked, and we talked till we were blue in the face, and I could not change this guy's mind. And so finally, after a couple of years of this, and this guy trying to recruit people to this toxic theology, I eventually had to uninvite this man to our church. And I didn't lose a moment's sleep about it. In fact, he's only one of two people in 28 years of ministry that I've ever uninvited to our church. But I didn't lose a second sleep about it. You know why? Because Paul says teaching like that, he says it in this next verse, it spreads like gangrene. Look at what Paul says about this. He uses an example right there in, in Ephesus. He says, here's a case in point. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. In other words, among these false teachers, they've departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and therefore they're ruining the faith of some. Now, what's so fascinating about this guy, Hymenaeus, is that Paul talked about him in 1 Timothy as well. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, I want you to look at what he said about Hymenaeus in this earlier book to Timothy. Paul says he had actually delivered him unto Satan. How do you do that? Had delivered him unto Satan in order that he might learn not to blaspheme. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that he's handed him over to Satan? I mean, for some of us, this sounds like a superpower. You probably know one or two people that you would like to hand over to Satan, right? You'd, you want to know, tell me, pastor, how do, I, how do I do this? How do I do what Paul did? But I, I think essentially what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, Let's let the one who gave you this doctrine be your Lord. He's saying, hey, he's the one who gave you this doctrine. Why don't you just go all the way with him? You know, you tell me that truth doesn't matter. But what was this doctrine specifically? Because this is important. Most likely, Hymenaeus was teaching that every believer experienced a, a spiritual resurrection 
uh, when they were born again, but that there was no bodily resurrection. There was no physical resurrection. And I'll tell you how we know this. Because Greek philosophy, these were Greek cities. This was in a Greek culture. Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophy of the day believed that bodies were evil. So it was unthinkable in Greek culture that God would resurrect a physical body. And so what Hymenius was trying to do was make the gospel more palatable to his culture. He was, he was uh, kind of, um, what's the word? He was compromising with God's word. And, you know, with, in, in bringing Greek culture and Greek theology and using that as, and, and combining that with Scripture. And so Paul says, look, you can't do that. God's Word needs to stay undiluted. It needs to stay pure. God's Word speaks across cultures. You can't ever adapt it to a specific culture. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 15 specifically, right? Look, if there's not a bodily resurrection, if it's not a physical resurrection, essentially he said, we're toast. Like we're preaching in vain, your faith is in vain, and everybody is still in their sins if there is not a bodily resurrection. So this is what was at stake. This was a big deal. And then, and because it was such a big deal, the last thing the apostle says is, hey, I want you to remember, I know there's, I know there's persecution outside the church, Timothy. I know there's division inside the church, but I need you to remember this. God's firm foundation, it still stands. Persecution can't wipe that out. Division can't stop that. And this is kind of like a coin with two sides. In fact, let me, let me read you the verse, verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm bearing this inscription. What he's going to do is he's going to quote the Old Testament twice from the same section. So what he's quoting from, it's really important that we know this story, right? So he quote two quotes. The first one is this, the Lord knows whose are his. And then here's the second quote, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Now, this is like two sides of a coin. Heads is God's side. Tails would be our side. So God's side is this. Let me give you an example. So Jesus, when he was betrayed by Judas... He wasn't taken aback by that. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't surprised like, no, you, you should, you know, it wasn't any of that. The scriptures tell us that Jesus knew from the very, very beginning that Judas was going to betray him. He knew Judas's heart from the very, very beginning. He wasn't surprised or taken aback by that. Why? Because the Lord knows whose are his. That's why. And Judas is a specific example of that, right? The other side of the coin is that men and women like you and I are capable of discerning false teaching as we faithfully cling to the word of God. So not only does God know whose are his, we can come to know whose are his by the fruit of their life and by the teaching of their life as we sift it through the word of God. See, this is so important. Now, these two quotes, 
Both of those quotations um, are taken from Numbers chapter 16 in what is called Korah's Rebellion. Now, so here's what happened. During Israel's kind of wandering through the wilderness, he and a few others, a couple of other men, they challenged the authority of Moses. So they were saying things like this. Why do we have to listen to Moses? Like, he's no different from us. I mean, we're men of learning just like he is. I mean, God can use us just as much as he can use Moses. So Moses took that problem to the Lord. He said, Lord, what do I do about these men? So God said, bring them here. Let me give them an examination. So Moses brought Korah and these two other men before the Lord. And here's what happened. In front of everybody, the ground opened up. It swallowed these men, and then the whole came back together. And God said, any questions? And there weren't any, right? I mean, that's the context. So you tell me that godly authority isn't important, that it doesn't matter. So Paul, in essence, let's recap, he tells Timothy that the way to handle division and disunity in the church about words is to plead with people for unity, to remind them before the Lord, to remember who they are and to stop quarreling. Second, to faithfully and studiously teach through the scriptures. Thirdly, don't stoke those arguments up. And then finally, don't panic, Timothy, because the Lord still knows who's are his. And now he's going to talk to us about the final way that a man or woman can be used by God. And this is so important for every one of us. There's so much on the line here, folks, for you, for your legacy, for your life, for your family, for your church. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clays. The idea here is, look, you've got expensive stuff in your home and then you've got inexpensive stuff, right? You've got stuff that you reserve for special occasions and then you've got more common things that you kind of just use here and there every day, right? And the idea is this, look, you don't take your fine china and use that to feed your dog. Your fine china is reserved for special occasions, And when someone, when a man or a woman says no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness, they become a special instrument in in God's household. And then he goes on to say this. So some, some of the possessions in our home are for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, when I was in high school, a movie came out. It was called The Blues Brothers. And if any of you remember The Blues Brothers, the running gag in that movie they would kind of say over and over and over again was what? They would, what would they say? Yeah, we're on a mission from God. Listen, do you know what Timothy's literally saying? He's saying it's possible for men and women to be special tools, special instruments for God to use. And the way that happens is you live purely. 
You live pure. You say no to unrighteousness and you say yes to righteousness. And when you do that, you're prepared for not just any good work, but for every kind of good work. You've become a man or woman that God can use fully, totally, and completely. Now, most of the commentators take this reference to a great house and the contents of the house as uh, they see the church as the house of God. In fact, Paul, that's a term Paul uses in his first letter to Timothy. So Paul is saying that in the church or in every house, he says, there are vessels. There are common ones and there are special ones. And he's just saying the way you move from becoming a common vessel to becoming a special instrument useful to God is by the way that you live your life, your character, your integrity, your purity, the way that you live. In fact, we see that in verse 21. He says, if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, then he will be a vessel for noble use now that phrase if so listen if you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you have some maturity in Christ that phrase probably bothers you a little bit and I think it should if a man purifies himself wait a minute because because you hear me say every week right you and I can't purify ourselves only Jesus can do that so what's going on here how how can a man be said to purify himself Well, listen, that does not mean, friends, that we have the power to deal with our own sins. It does not mean we have the power to cleanse our own lives. We do not have that power. But it does mean that we are responsible for walking in and applying to our lives the cleansing provided to us by our Jesus. Think about it this way. If you go in the bathroom and you wash your hands and there's not a bar of soap or a uh, you know a little some liquid soap if there's no soap in the bathroom right you can wash and wash and wash but you're not clean and in the same way that you can't get your hands clean without some soap we can't purify ourselves apart from the cleansing power of Jesus he has to be applied so let me give you an example so uh 1 John 1 9 says this, right? It says, um, if any of us confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will uh, cleanse us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's that word, purify, purity. He's the one doing the cleansing. How? By my confession, by my awareness. Hey, Jesus, I shouldn't have done that. You want more for me than that. You want better than that for me than me for that I repent of that I turn from that I change my mind about that I want to turn from that and I want to turn towards you that's what confession is and when I confess I'm applying the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus to my life that's kind of what it's saying here so so just like without that soap there's no cleansing in the bathroom without the gift of Jesus, there's no cleansing in your heart, your soul, your mind, or your life. So this is a big deal. I mean, here's what God's saying, essentially. He's saying, look, when I serve my meals to people, I want to serve my meals on clean plates. I want to serve my meals through people that are clean and righteous and pure. 
I don't like serving my meals on dirty, through dirty instruments or uh, with, that aren't uh, clean or s- sanitized. You know, no, I want to serve through, I want to serve my meals on clean plates. And I want you to notice, I just, I got to point this out, that you cannot uh, go on living like you've always done and expect God to use you. He cannot, he will not until there is a cleansing. Now notice the result. He says, if anyone purifies himself, he will be a special instrument set apart. It's almost as if God says, oh, I see you. I'm going to take you here and I'm going to put you over here because you're reserved for those special occasions, right? I'm going to use you in powerful ways, in ways that you never dreamed or never imagined. And life just becomes a tremendous adventure, friends, as you discover all the incredible ways that God can use you. But all of this hinges upon your willingness and my willingness to turn away from evil and to turn towards good. In fact, look what Paul says in verse 22. Now, I'm not going to teach a lot here in verse 22 because next week Pastor Craig is going to stand up and he's going to start with this verse. And I want to tell you why we're going to cover this verse two weeks in a row. This is going to be one of the verses we're going to ask you to memorize here. So uh, today I'm going to say, look, you need to commit this verse to memory. Next week, Craig is going to stand up and start with this verse. And he's going to say, you need to commit this verse to memory. And some of you are going to go, wow, they're kind of serious about that. Maybe I should commit that verse to memory. Like you finally kind of get the, get the hint, right? This is so important. This is one of those verses. But I'm not going to teach deeply on this verse today. I'm going to leave it for Craig to unpack with you next week, but I do want to make a couple of observations. Here's what he says. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he says the way to turn from dishonorable living, the way to become an honorable instrument in the hands of the master is you flee from what he calls youthful passions. You begin to chase different things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, it's interesting when he says flee youthful passions, probably what most of us think is we immediately think of sexual urges, right? I mean, that's probably what's raised in our minds. And it certainly would include a sex life that is unsurrendered to God, In other words, things like premarital sex or extramarital sex or pornography or even an unhealthy preoccupation or obsession with sex. But by this time, here's the thing, Timothy was in his mid-30s. I mean, he had traveled with Paul for 16 years or more. He had a great deal of experience in learning how to handle the sexual drives within him. So commentators say this is about something more than just sex. Certainly would include that, but there's more at work. And here's what one commentator said, and I think this is so insightful. He said, we may conclude from what precedes and what follows that Paul is referring to the temptations of a young pastor to things like pride and arrogance and the display of their own wisdom. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's because he's confronting false teachers, 
He's the guy, right? He's the hero. He's the Savior. No, there's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. Listen, this is why I tell you all the time, if I'm not walking with Jesus, I have nothing to offer you. I just don't. My wisdom, listen, if you're coming to hear my wisdom, you may as well pack it up and go home defeated. Because I have none for you. My job is to preach the word of God. It's God's wisdom that matters, not mine. And this is why it is so important that preachers and teachers who preach and teach the word live their lives surrendered in the way that Paul is asking Timothy. Because otherwise, I'm not a pure vessel. I'm not a clean vessel. And God always wants to serve his meals on clean plates. So he says, listen, He's saying, you got to set aside pride. you gotta, you got to quit thinking that it's your wisdom that people need. They don't. They need mine. So focus there. Now, is it wrong for Timothy to defend the faith or stand up for the truth of Scripture? No, he's supposed to do that. But what he's warning against is a prideful attitude in that or a refusal to listen to anyone else or this idea that, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, I'm going to kind of, you know, shun up, right? Shun up. You disagree with me. I don't like you. You're no longer a brother or sister. In other words, brother, Christians need to be able to learn how to disagree with one another and still love one another. This is so vitally important. And he says this, and I want you to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. I love that word pursue. It means to chase after. It means to run for it. Go for it. Go for it with all your heart, mind, and strength. And I want you to notice that all four of those things, Craig will define them next week, but righteousness, faith, hope, and love, they only come by the Spirit. They're all fruit of the Spirit. So I think what, what, you know, what Timothy is saying, essentially, is he's saying, look, you have to live out of the resources of the Holy Spirit as you do this. Like, you know, if you want to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, those things only come from the Holy Spirit. You know, you can't get them anywhere else. And so, and then he says this, and I want to make one more point here, and then we'll start to land the plane. He says, I want you to seek peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, I want to talk about a pure heart because there's no such thing. In fact, Scripture says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You go, well, wait a minute, then why does he use the word pure? I just don't like the CSB's translation here. The word, the word is literally the word a cleansed heart a cleansed heart. It goes back to that idea of a man purifying himself, right? Applying the forgiveness of Jesus personally to his life. It goes back to that. It's a heart, not that's pure, but that's cleansed. In fact, in our culture, listen to me, everybody look at me. When somebody says to you, and I hear it all the time, and I want to throw up every time I hear it, when somebody says to you, just follow your heart, that is terrible advice. You can't trust your heart. 
You can't. Your heart lives to serve your flesh. What you want to do is you want to live surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And that's completely different than following your heart. It is. Your call is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple of things. People with cleansed hearts, they're not the kind of people that look down their noses at everybody else. Because they know their hearts have been cleansed, they're grateful for the standing they have before God. Because they recognize that their hearts needed to be cleansed. They're not going to look at your heart and say, well, that's just pathetic. Why? Because well, they have all the same junk in their hearts and they know it. They needed cleansing just as badly as you did. And so they know it. So they have cleansed hearts. And then he goes on to say this, I want you to... Seek these things along with those who call on the Lord from a cleansed heart. You know what this command reminds us? It reminds us that none of us in this room are meant to live our, to, to walk out our faith with Jesus by ourselves. We're not meant to do it alone. We're meant to do it in the context of community, alongside others, alongside others who also call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. See? Now, it means we're better together is what it means. And here's, so let's just tease this out a bit. So this means that you can't sit at home in your living room, turn on church day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and expect to continue developing. You need to be alongside other people. You need to call on the name of the Lord with others who also call on the name of the Lord from a cleansed heart. Community is so vitally important. Now, and I'll tell you something this doesn't mean. This does not mean avoid contact with non-Christians. Like you only want to spend time with people who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. No, it is not saying that. That is an overreaction that is way extreme and way unhealthy. Friends, you are needed in your place of work. You are. All those buddies that you don't like hanging around because they have potty mouths and, you know, they tell the jokes and you think you don't want to hear it. Do you know why God has you in that place? Because he wants you in that place. He wants you to be a change agent in that place. So sure, you need to be around people who call on the name of the Lord from a cleansed heart, but you also need to be around the people who have potty mouths and who take the name of our Lord and Savior in vain. You need them because they need you and they need God, just like you and I did. So, you know, Paul essentially advises him, Timothy, if you want to be used by God, right? If you want to be used by God in an environment where there's persecution from outside the church, where there's division inside the church, then that begins by you saying no to dishonorable things and yes to the things that God wants you to say yes to. And if you do that, Timothy, God will pick you up. He'll dust you up. He'll polish you up and he will use you in ways you never dreamt or imagined you could be used. And God would say the same thing to you today. God wants to use you. He longs to use you. He would pick you up and set you apart in an instant 
if you were saying yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. So here's what I want to invite us to do. We've got a few minutes left together. I'm going to invite Brandon to come up. And he's essentially going to sing a prayer. And I want you to think of this as a prayer. And I want you to, so, and I want you to interact with the word. So as he's singing, maybe you go, you know what, I'm not sure I believe that. God, then go, okay, God, help me believe that. I'm not sure I really want that. Okay, God, help me to want that. Like interact with this prayer. And I want you to think about the words that we're going to sing. I want you to think about them as we're singing them because they're so truthful and they're so profound and they represent the deepest needs of every one of our hearts, this song that he's about to sing. So uh, I want you to start out, we're going to listen and I want you to pray it along with him and interact with that prayer. And then he'll invite you at about midway to stand and join him and, and sing the rest out loud. So are you with me? Let's, let's say that prayer together. Let me pray for you first. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you long to use us. You're so good. We give you thanks and we give you praise and we do it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.